Well, welcome to this beautiful Sunday, December 4th day. I'm going to back up a little bit with this podcast. Uh, I know I was going to talk about uh, intuition and impulse, but I want to give a little background to where I'm coming from. began, God, 35 years ago. And it occurred from things that I have read that my understanding, my rational mind, uh, was sort of off the map. And it seemed that at the dawn of the 20, 20th century, what I call the veil of forgetfulness regarding our true nature started to lift. Many of us began to see a different way of being. And so we struggled to free ourselves from the beliefs and myopia of the mass mind in which we had been submerged. C.G. Young referred to collective thinking as the mass man, an individual so conditioned by his culture that he is unable to see himself. Well, in many ways, we are all C.G. Young's mass man. Individuals trapped by invisible mass cultural beliefs that have us constantly comparing ourselves to others and often failing in the comparison. In addition, we react. We don't think we react and we feel that outside stuff is the cause of us. None of us escape the effect of our beliefs and even fewer recognize the beliefs through which we conduct our daily lives. The old mythology, which is fading fast today, both scientific and religious, tells us the earth is nothing more than external matter that our five senses are able to perceive. You know, a stone is hard and potentially dangerous, especially if it hits you in the eye. Water is wet and cannot be breathed. And winter is cold. Summer is hot. Plants and animals are food to sustain our bodies. And all meaning is contained in the utility of an object. As the new postmodern mythology struggled to form its own story at the beginning of the 20th century, we began to understand Joseph Campbell's question... Are we the light, or are we the vehicle through which the light is emitted? We began to attach meaning. Not all of us, but some of us, began to attach meaning to the world. And nature began to change as our beliefs about it changed. Along with the outer metamorphosis, a more important inner metamorphosis was taking place. The modern mythology told us we are ravenous caterpillars bent on consuming the world, a world where the fittest survive. And, you know, looking out into the world, that would seem to be quite accurate. You know, we chose to swim downstream with the school, content with the rubber stamp of mass man. It was safe, and we didn't like differences either in others or in ourselves. It was the wide way, 
It was the only way we knew. If you ever pass through what Jesus referred to as the narrow gate of a life lived with the freedom of choice, for few recognized we even had a choice. Anyways, the new mythology continued its rise to the surface, and the caterpillar slowed its eating, driven by an undeniable call that was as irresistible as Paul's on the road to Damascus. Conflict, crisis, and trauma sent us into the pupa stage, that period of inactivity in the metamorphosis that precedes the adult stage, the butterfly. Although it didn't seem that way, it was a stage similar to that of Jesus' 40 days in the wilderness and the Buddha's six years of searching for enlightenment. We felt as though the world was falling apart. And it looked that way. Remember, you will perceive what it is you believe. By the time we emerged from our chrysalis, wings damp and folded, we had a dim sense that the world may have something to tell us about ourselves. In fact, we began to understand, individual by individual, that the world is an outer, abstract reflection of who each of us is internally. As caterpillars, the world sustained us, but as butterflies, the world became a literal projection of our own inner subjective state. The New World Mythology turns matter to metaphor, an outer symbolic projection of an equally real inner literal world where consciousness is so much more than a chemical reaction in the brain, which science adheres to for sure. The old mythology screamed of goals and ignored the moment, but the new whispered of something called now and began to understand, individual by individual, that the world is an outer reflection of each of us internally. As caterpillars, the world sustained us, but as butterflies, the world became a literal projection of our own inner subjective state. The New World Mythology turns matter to metaphor, an outer symbolic projection of an equally real inner literal world where consciousness is so much more than a chemical reaction in the brain. What is it that keeps the blade of grass growing? Could it be that it is not the sun the grass seeks, but the simple experience of being? Nothing wrong with that, of being, of reaching for the sun. Could it be that the purpose of a blade of grass is simply to experience itself as grass? There's a novel idea. It is a perfect metaphor for ourselves. If our focus remains on the goal rather than the process of being, we can never be fully in the present. The new mythology extols the life of a blade of grass. It extols the life to be found in the present moment, 
for it is the only moment we have. The present moment is the eternity that each of us seeks. We can feel it in the marrow of our bones. I know I do. The new mythology tells us of duality. Duality is the clash of opposites. It speaks of good and bad and how our vision of such things is transformed by the slow march of time. At first glance, a forest fire is a greedy, fire-breathing dragon devouring all life in its path. It is unconcerned with property values or spotted owls. There are no value judgments in nature. A mindless devastation later turns out to be a masterful grooming, a cooperative venture between fire and forest. If we allow ourselves to thought, it seems conscious in its intent. The old is swept away to make room for the new, and we begin to interpret the outer world much like we interpret a dream. Perception didn't just take us in, it projected out. The world is our individual perception. That's right, folks. There's seven billion individual perceptions of the world. There is not one world to be perceived differently by each of us. We see communications in circles and cycles. Spring becomes more than the end of winter and the harbinger of summer. It becomes the symbol of rebirth, of the new replacing the old in each and every moment. In the new mythology, winter goes from representing increased heating bills and ice-slick roads to a time of drawing in and reflection. The seasons of the earth are reflective of the phases of our lives, ever-changing and no one more valuable than the other. They're just different. When we value only the summer, we are blind to the gifts of winter, spring, and fall. When we value only peace, we become blind to the gifts of conflict. We will have a preference, but we will no longer be blind to the significance of each. You know, we remember the old modern mythology that formed our beliefs and turned leprechauns into imaginative stories. From our earliest days, we are told it is a dog-eat-dog world and that only the fittest survive. It seemed true, at least it did to me, for who could agree with the king of the jungle and who dared stand in the path of a charging elephant the size of a 16-wheeler, but slowly come into a different world view, for it finally occurs to us that the lion does not sit up the Serengeti by itself. He cannot survive without the wildebeest and gazelle nor can they survive without his ability to thin their herds. It is all a cooperative enterprise, an endeavor signifying a whole, not separate parts as the old myth tells us. 
we begin to see a joint venture of the strong and the weak, a play of opposites that is an integral part of our reality. Destroy one and both disappear. Indeed, without one, the other cannot be discerned. How can we recognize weakness without having experienced strength? Try it out, my friend. You're not going to be able to do it. How can we feel love without having known hatred? Is there a point where cold becomes hot or low becomes high or black becomes white? We're told that the hottest hot and the coldest cold feels the same. If we leave our front door and walk straight for 33,000 miles, we complete a circle. Cycles and circles. Nature is full of them. We are full of them. You know, it wasn't his intent, but it was ultimately Isaac Newton who robbed nature of its symbolic value. But when Copernicus flicked the Earth from its central position in the solar system, we began the slide down the slippery slope toward a loss of human significance. Each of us went from being the center of the universe to a meaningless speck on the outer arm of a spiral galaxy that is one of over 100 billion galaxies and growing. Put another way, we became a flea on the ass of an elephant. According to Dr. Paul Helfrich, consciousness went from being a large sea to a small sea. We went from being special and part of an infinite consciousness, some call God, to believing we are nothing more than a cosmic coincidence. Sir Isaac Newton fertilized Copernicus's seed with science, told us the universe was nothing more than a well oiled machine and placed our struggle to understand consciousness in a cryogenic deep freeze. Human consciousness became a byproduct of a specific combination of chemicals and matter. Science has performed great things, but it has also led us to believe that we can know the whole by examining its parts. In doing so, it has so separated us from our environment and from each other that we have developed a cultural neurosis. Just look at the cities. Look at the homeless. Look at those with mental illness. It's not a function of chemistry. It's a function of the culture. It just goes on and on and on. Many no longer believe in the external nature of consciousness. And so it's no big leap for our children to squeeze the trigger of a Smith & Wesson and launch a missile into the brain of a 15-year-old who we believe was at the wrong place at the wrong time. We tell ourselves it was God's will if we invoke religion at all. Why should a child... Think of the inherent value of life when all around him is the evidence of their beliefs that no one really cares 
or gives a shit. The message of the scientific modern myth was clear. Darwin formed part of the story, and we bought it by entrenching the belief that science, by entrenching the theory into the realm of fact and truth. <coughs> we are the product of evolution, the myth goes, and it is the baddest ass on the block that passes on the genes. As our beliefs continue to create hierarchies, we follow the modern mythology individually and as a culture. Our children see pictures of the disenfranchised every day on their TV screens. They see the withered bodies of starving third world children and street bums living in boxes on cold city streets. The viewing often takes place while eating a 2,000 calorie meal and switching the channel so as not to disturb digestion. This isn't wrong. I mean, as we are prone to judge, it's just the way it is. We watch ourselves kill each other over who has the right God and shake our heads in wonder. How can they be so blind, we say, while our need for fossil fuels spews tons of pollutants into the atmosphere, killing countless thousands every year, and the rising seas obliterate homelands. It is less direct, but it is killing nevertheless. When human life is pitted against a balance sheet, and the balance sheet wins, we rail against the establishment. When a human life is pitted against another human life, and one is sacrificed, we have lost touch with soul. But maintain our contact with the modern mythology. We are all mirrors for each other. Our children turn everywhere and see nothing but victims. We feel so disconnected from the world that we have grown allergic to it. From the moment our children can understand, they learn and then incorporate it as a belief and then a truth that they must defend themselves against the outer world. The belief is so deeply rooted that it has become invisible. It becomes a truth. And when a child no longer can tolerate being disconnected and abused because he is different and believes he must struggle to perpetuate his particular pool of DNA, he cracks and goes offensive. Unable to see our part in the play, we blame everyone else. In the U.S., we rail against the National Rifle Association, condemn the movie industry for its glut of violence, link gangster rappers with Beelzebub, and suspend eight-year-olds from school, for God's sakes, for ten days for drawing a stick figure with a gun in his hand. We are exceptionally quick to judge, exceedingly slow to accept, and myopic and seeing our reflection in what we judge. 
The problem does not lie with the weapon, although the weapon makes the killing easier. The problem does not lie in the images on the silver screen, although they tend to deaden our emotional response. Much like the repetition of a surgical procedure steals the physician to the side of blood. The problem lies within the individual, and the gangster rapper is the individual's child, our mirror image. We are now reaping the fruit of the seeds, which I call beliefs, that we have sown, and to blunt the impact, we must pluck the beam from our own eye before pulling the splinter from our enemies. We must begin seeing the outer world as a reflection of our inner individual worlds. And that's that whole segment you just heard there is where I'm coming from when you read any of uh, my materials, my books, uh, blogs, whatever. And I thought it important that you know that. I believe that we are all connected. I believe that individually and in mass create our own individual realities. Yeah? It just makes sense to me. Okay. That matter can create consciousness just plain seems stupid to me. But consciousness is powerful. So with that in mind, maybe the next time, the next p- podcast, I'll address a lot of things that have lain hidden. And I'll talk about impulse and intuition and imagination and the powers that those hold. So thanks for listening to my rant here, and uh, I'll talk to you next time. Thanks.